Well, think with me for a moment about the Christian life. Is it mostly about holiness or is it mostly about love? The tendency is to sacrifice the importance for one or the other. And so sometimes we could say, well, the Christian life is all about love. But then maybe do we sacrifice holiness? Or we could say the Christian life is all about holiness. But maybe do we sacrifice love? Once again, the answer is not in the extremes. And once again, we see that the Bible holds both of these things in balance and intention. The Christian life is about both holiness and love. And as a matter of fact, you can't have one without the other. They are related to each other. They are dependent on one another. How? And Paul's going to tell us all about that today. Changing gears here. We're fresh off the Advent season where we spent four weeks anticipating the arrival of Jesus the Messiah by looking at who he was. Last week, we reflected and reinforced our mission and vision, our vision being to love God and love people, and our mission being to bring glory to God by the making and maturing of disciples of Jesus Christ. This week, back on track in Romans. And so programming note, we'll be in Romans until we finish. We've only got a couple more chapters. Looks like one, two and a half more pages here, and we'll be done. And then we will be starting a new series in Genesis uh, in, the, in March. But that being said, now we pick up in Romans 13, where we left off just after Thanksgiving. We saw how we were to consider and relate to the government and the authorities. And now Paul starts in verse 8. He shifts gears to more general topics of relating to each other. Look again with me at Romans 13 and verse 8. Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another or love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You'll note there's a common starting point, a subject here of owing people something. From verse 7, we saw the last time we were in Romans, verse 7 told us to pay what is owed to them, taxes, revenue, respect, honor. And so again, he's kind of picking up this theme of owing someone something, but now he's expanding it to not just talk about the governing authorities. Paul exhorts them to owe no one anything except one thing. There's one debt that is continually and perpetually due, and there's one debt that will never be satisfied, that will never be paid, and that is the debt to love each other. Think about that. One day, maybe we'll pay our houses off. Maybe one day we'll pay our cars off, credit card bills, all that stuff. We should be paying those off, right? This, this uh, verse is not a prohibition against a Christian going into debt, but we should definitely be paying our debts. We should be thinking responsibly and biblically about those things. But the idea is we pay those debts off. Paul says there's one debt that you will never pay off. That is the continuing ongoing debt to love each other. It will never be paid in full. It's a continual obligation. Why? Well, he goes on and tells us four, because the one who is loving each other, loving one another, has fulfilled the law. Brings up the law again. We can't seem to escape it in Romans, and particularly here, right? We, we've talked about the law a lot, especially last week in our vision and mission. If you missed that, make sure you catch up with that. For the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, he summarizes 
the law, the greatest commandment, we said last week, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commands hold the, or hang the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Paul quotes four out of five of the second half of the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> which we read again this morning, the second table of the law. He leaves out honoring your parents, but then asserts that not, it's not limited to these four commandments because he throws in at the end there, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment. We have to worry about is he just restricting himself to these four or five commandments? No, he's not. He says, and any other commandment. So the whole moral law, the whole Decalogue, the whole Ten Commandments. Commentator Murray writes that the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, it shows us that it is of permanent and abiding relevance. So the Ten Commandments still in force. Of course, Jesus has fulfilled them in a different way. They're, they're in force. We still grow. We still need these commandments. But Paul says the summary commandment is to love each other. And if you love each other, you have fulfilled the law. Paul repeats the words of Jesus as the summary of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he summarizes and defines love as this in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is teaching us what true love is. And so here's our first point. True Christian love does no wrong to others. True Christian love does no wrong to others. I'm just going to turn my mic down a little bit there. Okay. True Christian love does no wrong to each other. It's worth repeating the classic, also Pauline, definition of love that I'm sure you're thinking of in 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Again, reinforcing that the debt to love one another will never end. We will continue to love each other. Love is eternal. And in our current clown world, we have many unbiblical and wrong definitions of the word love. Love can be between any adults, regardless of biological sex, gender, or even age. Love is a feeling, and you have to, to be true to yourself. You have to follow that feeling at all costs. Love also means, according to our culture, never telling someone else that they might be wrong. Now, the primary context of this command is regarding believers to believers within the church of Jesus Christ. He says each other. So he's writing to the church. He's talking to us as believers. But, of course, that is never to the exclusion of unbelievers. We don't get a pass. We just, well, sorry, you're an unbeliever. I don't have to love you. No, we have to love all people, but particularly the body of Christ. But going back to the definition of love, true Christian love is not merely a feeling. It's not merely an emotion. It's not also that we never say hard things to each other or we never say that someone might be wrong or sinning, according to God's word. Instead, as Paul mentions elsewhere in Ephesians 4.15, rather, watch this, speaking the truth in love, 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Love is actually saying the hard things, contrary to our culture. Love is telling someone sometimes that they're wrong or that that is sin, contrary to our culture. But how does love fulfill the law of God? And what does it practically mean? Two ways. First, we see that Jesus fulfilled the law of God with his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension because of love. The whole mission of Jesus was driven by love. The mission of the Messiah fulfills the law, and Jesus was driven by love. Ephesians 2 famously tells us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions or trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And of course, we probably could all say John 3.16 from memory, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so first, Jesus fulfilled the law as the Messiah, coming, doing what the law could not, and love drove him to do that. But second, we see that the love, or rather love fulfills the law of God if we actually love one another. If we actually love one another, we don't have to focus so much on all of those, those five commandments or six commandments in the back half of the table. We don't have to worry all of those little, little details. Am I keeping this commandment? Am I keeping that commandment? If you actually love one another. The point here is simple. If we focus on the summary command to love one another as much as we love ourselves, we would never do wrong to someone else, especially to the body of believers. I hope it's obvious that murdering someone is not loving. Committing adultery is not loving. Stealing from someone is not loving. Coveting what they have as you want it so badly is not loving. See the idea? You focus on all those, I don't want to murder anybody, I don't want to murder anybody, well, I hope you don't want to murder anybody, but focus on loving them and you won't have to worry about, am I worried about murdering them or not? This, again, is why biblical Christianity is not about box checking. I haven't murdered anyone today. I haven't committed adultery today. I haven't stolen from someone today. I'm good. Okay, fine, but what is driving that behavior? Is it legalistic obedience or is it love for the other person? One commentator put it like this. All of the various commands of the law are simply expressions of love. Love is at the heart and soul of the commands, that if one begins to focus on the commands and loses sight of love, then rigidity and legalism is sure to follow. If we were to stop and think before we speak or act or attempted to have a sinful, sinful thought against our brother and sister, ask ourselves, is this loving? Am I acting in love towards my brother or sister? Am I really looking out for their best interests? Am I really considering their needs as more important than my own? Again, sometimes the answer to that question is yes, and we do have to go on and say hard things to one another or call somebody out for a sin. That is still a loving thing to do. But sometimes the answer is for us to shut our mouths, repent of a lack of love for them, and ask God to give it to us and walk in it. True Christian love does no wrong to others. And why is this so important? Paul's going to tell us. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews 13. He says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first 
believed. Paul tells them the reason why it is so critical to be loving one another, and he says, because the time is short. What exactly does that mean? And Paul explains, for your salvation, or because your salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Does this mean that the New Testament writers expected Jesus to return at any moment? Most likely, yes. And I think if you saw the kind of things that Jesus did, and then resurrected from the grave, ascended back to the Father, you would probably think he's returning right away as well. One of my favorite scenes in the book of Acts is after Jesus ascends. The disciples are there staring at the sky, mouths wide open, and the angel says, what are you doing? Get to work. Stop looking at the sky. He's not coming right back. Go. He just gave you orders. Go do it. But regardless of when Jesus is returning, there's one simple truth. Every day, we are nearer to our salvation than when we first believed. Whether that means Jesus returns tomorrow or whether we pass away, the actual truth is yes, every day we are actually one day closer to our salvation. I don't know who does it, but one of my Twitter people, every single day he has a tweet that says, you are one day closer to heaven, Christian. And and that's the reality of it. That's what Paul means here. Every day we're one, closer to our sal- one day closer to our salvation. And we might think, well, hold on here. I'm already saved. What does this mean, my salvation? And I'm closer to my salvation. Well, yes and no. Again, this is another thing that Scripture holds in tension. We are saved positionally. We are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, so we are saved. But church, we're not home yet. We have to get there. We have to get to our salvation. That's what Paul is talking about. And Christ will hold us fast and will sustain us to do that. So practically, this means Paul explains, the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Yes, the Bible actually tells us to stay woke. What does it mean to be awake or woke biblically? It means to be alert. It means to be ready. It means to not be asleep. For example... On New Year's Eve, we stayed up very late, 9.45 p.m., and then I went to sleep. The next morning, Melanie rolls over and says, did you hear the fireworks? And I was like, nope, didn't hear a thing. I was asleep. I was not aware that fireworks were going on. And so metaphorically, being awake, being woke, means to be aware of things. Here it means to be awake and aware of the fact that we are one day closer to our salvation than when we first believed. So you better be careful how you live. You better be intentional how you live. We don't know how much time we have left. It means to understand the times that we live in, to know what time it is, so to speak, and to know how to respond. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Chronicles, the men of Issachar were such men. Men of Issachar who, under, who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They were awake. But what does being woke mean today, culturally? It means to be aware of oppression or prejudice or discrimination, whether that is racial, gender, sexual, political, whatever. Everybody has rights, and most everybody is oppressed, and whether or not those rights are actually right or not. Cultural wokeness is all around us. It's being shoved down our throats. Corporations, sporting associations, politics, public schools, and universities are tripping over each other to show the world how woke they are. 
And we saw that backfire this week in a few Ivy League schools. Is this the kind of wokeness the Bible is calling us to here in Romans? Absolutely not. And so here's the second point. True Christian wokeness is biblical, not cultural. True Christian wokeness is biblical, not cultural. Does this mean that the church should turn a blind eye to actual racism, to actual discrimination, to actual prejudice, to actual oppression? By no means. Those things are sinful, and God hates them. But it does mean that what much of the world might call as wrong is according to their standard, not according to this. This is the standard, the word of God. Paul is calling us to be biblically woke because we don't know how much time we have left. The hour has come. He says, pay attention to these things. So do we understand the times? Are we like the men of Issachar? Do we understand the times in which Highlands Bible Church is called to right here, right now? We need to. One modern author has a way of looking at recent history in three ways. How the world around us perceives Christianity. He says there's three ways, there are three worlds. There's the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world. Many years ago, he notes, he has some dates around these things in the 60s or so, Christianity was viewed positively as the world around us looked at us. They respected the Bible, and it actually shaped much of public life. Then came the neutral world. The world around us became mostly ambivalent to Christianity. It kind of blended into all the other worldviews. Fine, you believe Christianity, that's okay with me. I don't. I believe something else. Our faith kind of melted into the backdrop of the increasing visibility of other religions and faiths and worldviews. Atheism, new spirituality, agnosticism, etc. But then came the negative world. Within the last 10 years... The world around us has viewed Christianity negatively. In fact, Christianity in the biblical worldview is seen as a threat to the new world agenda and ideology of cultural wokeness, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The Bible stands in the way of progress for the LGBTQ agenda, for BLM, for social justice, for cultural Marxism, for abortion as health care, and everything else. And church, this is what time it is. The positive world is gone. Neutrality is a myth. The world and its woke agenda is against the Bible. The question is, are we woke to the dangers of cultural wokeness? So what do we do? I'll give us three quick things here, too. First, we stop trying to be neutral. Second, we know the battle lines. And third, we prep for the fight. First, stop trying to be neutral. To our woke culture, the Bible is the enemy, God is the enemy, and we are too because we adhere to both of those things. Expect resistance. There's a big debate going on in some circles of Christianity today about winsomeness, the idea of trying to uh, look acceptable to the world, trying to make friends. Winsomeness doesn't work anymore in a negative world. There are clear lines of what is sinful and what is not, and we can't over-nuance those lines because we sacrifice the truth. In a negative world, winsomeness doesn't work. And so stop trying to be neutral. Realize, understand the times. Second, know the battle lines. Part of knowing what time it is is knowing the hot spots. Know where the Bible, the biblical worldview, conflicts with the secular wokeness worldview. To see how thickly those lines are drawn on cultural issues of today. 
Understand, here's the balance, but don't be obsessed with the current worldviews and ideologies. Know why they are unbiblical. Know why CRT, social justice, BLM, all of that is unbiblical. So stop trying to be neutral. Know the battle lines and third, prep for the fight. This isn't saying that you have to be a jerk and pick fights over Christmas dinner, over politics. But be ready when they come up. Be ready in your worldview to know why these things are wrong. Be bold and be clear. Speak, const- speak without constantly clarifying or nuancing or apologizing for the truth. Sometimes this means radical changes. Sometimes people have found themselves having to have a different job or pulling the kids out of public schools or getting involved in board meetings and local politics, talking to teachers about hard things, speaking out. Highlands, we have to know what time it is as the world around us is screaming their cultural wokeness. But true Christian wokeness is biblical, not cultural. That's what Paul is saying. Stay awake. Let's look at the last section. Look at verse 12. The night is gone, far gone, and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." Paul uses another metaphor, this time day and night, or darkness and light. He's talking first about sin and righteousness, sin being darkness and righteousness being light. 1 John 1 tells us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, and we should walk in the light, meaning that we should walk in a righteous way and avoid sin. Second part of the metaphor is that darkness is a lack of ability to see clearly, And that should also translate to our lives. Ephesians 5 talks about this, where we are walking. Are we walking in darkness or are we walking in the light? Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8, says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and righteous and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The idea of we are, we are supposed to be walking in a way that we could see where we are going and we know where we are going. Not in darkness. But third, the night and day metaphor means it's time to get to work. Generally, people work in the daytime and sleep at night. He says, the night's gone. The day's here. Day is when you do work. It's time to do work. It's time to be done with sin. It's time to be done with living like someone stumbling around in the dark. And he repeats this sentiment of cast off, meaning get rid of, throw aside the works of darkness, the sin in our lives. And he says, put on the armor of light. The armor of God, Allah, Ephesians 6 requires us to put on, and when we put on following God in righteousness, we are protected the armor of God. When we walk in sin, we are vulnerable. We are deceived. We walk in the darkness. So what does this practically mean? Well, Paul gets very, very practical. He says in verse 13, let us walk properly in the daytime. And then he goes on to list three pairs of sins to cast off. 
orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, and quarreling and jealousy. And so the, the first pair, orgies and drunkenness. I am not down with ESV's translation word here. This is the Greek word komos, which means more of just reckless abandon. It was used at the time in first century Greece for someone who just went from feast to feast to feast and had zero self-restraint about anything, about eating, about drinking, and especially about sex, as we'll see in a moment. And so I'm, I'm less like, I don't like the word orgy here. I like the word um, reckless abandon. I like the word lack of self-restraint. It has more to do with such an attitude that is fueled by alcohol. It means a night or a lifestyle of unrestrained partying, where anything goes. Like the CSB says, let us walk with decency, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. CSB goes with carousing there. In the Bible, of course, alcohol use is not sinful, but drunkenness clearly is. And one of the reasons why is because if you're drunk, you have a sudden inability to make wise decisions. Your judgment is impaired. You can have those nights of reckless abandon where anything goes. Maybe a night of bar hopping where you go from bar to bar and drink far too much. Lots of bad decisions happen there. And that's what Paul's talking about. That shouldn't be you. That can't be you. The second pair is often one of the first encountered sinful consequences of drunkenness, which is sexual immorality. Paul tells us to cast off sexuality and sensuality, or as CSB again helps us, promiscuity. It is worth saying that it's just one more place where the Bible clearly condemns any and all sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man and one woman and says it is sinful, point blank. Talk about knowing the lines, knowing the times, knowing the times of our culture. Why is sexual immorality sinful? And what is it? We know from the Bible that God created sex. God created marriage. And it is between one man and one woman. And that's it. Anything else outside of that is sexual immorality. The Greek here is very strong. It is referring to the actual act of sex and the pattern of sexual sin. And the third pair of sins here to avoid is the sort of sins that get lost. After we read words like orgy and drunkenness and things, we, you know, quarreling and jealousy are just like, okay, whatever, haven't done any of that, or have I? Quarreling is somewhat public. We all know those people who just love to argue for argument's sake. Who in their pride wants to prove how smart they are by picking an argument with anyone and everyone? But jealousy, it's a little bit hard to tell. I mean, sure, if we act out in jealousy, if our boyfriend or girlfriend is talking to someone of the opposite sex and we go crazy and key their car or trash them on Facebook, I mean, that's kind of obvious that we're acting out of jealousy. But Paul, again, brings this down to the level of the heart. Because if you're struggling with jealousy in your heart, how is anyone going to know that? So heart sins are sins as well. Let's not think that Paul is only worrying about the big sins here. It's part of the reason we have these sort of vice lists that we see here. He always, seemingly, I don't know about always, most of the time, has these big sins, and then he throws in these little sins at the end. All sin is sin to God. And is there truly a little sin? So the point is pretty obvious here. It's a call to be legit. 
If you're going to call yourself a Christian, he says, act like a Christian. And so third point is that true Christian faith is seen in actual righteousness. True Christian faith is seen in actual righteousness. We need to pursue righteousness, church. We need to be characterized by righteousness, not the sort of sins that Paul lists here. Christians, we need to act like Christians. Christians need to avoid sin. We need to cast it off. We need to seek to live like God calls us to live. We need to cast off sin and put on righteousness. And don't miss the analogy here of putting on and putting off. Right? This morning, snow blowing the driveway, I put on a lot of stuff before I walked out there, and then I took it off and I came here. It's an analogy that Paul uses elsewhere. Famously, Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17, he says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, right? Those people that would walk in sin like he describes. They are darkened, there's our concept again, in their understanding, uh, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They've become calloused. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, sinful self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and watch this, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul picks up that, uh, that theme in the book of Colossians as well, in Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, watch this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, once again, church, it is not so much about the details, the box checking. Paul says in Colossians 3, above all else, put on love, and that will bind everything together in perfect harmony. Our lives as Christians cannot be characterized with these kind of sins that Paul lists here in Romans 13. Instead, we're to take those off and put on righteousness. And this is the gospel. The gospels never just stop sinning. Just clean yourself up. Just stop doing those things. The gospel is always we can't help sometimes but do those things because of our sinful nature. So we come to Christ. He renews our heart. And therefore, we do take off those sins. We repent of those sins. And then we put on righteousness. We walk out our faith. True Christian faith is seen in actual righteousness. And so the analogy is clear as much as possible, church. We're to be done with sin. We're to take it off. We're to throw it aside. A Christian's life should not be characterized merely by the things that we don't do, but what we are supposed to be doing. It should look like righteousness. So if being done with sin is useless, if we're not actually replacing it and walking in righteousness... Maybe you've made some New Year's resolutions. Maybe your spouse or your friends have been making it clear some things need to change. 
Maybe the Holy Spirit's been validating both of those things as they're true and right, and you feel that conviction. Here's the time. Paul says, do it. Just cast them off. It is time. It's far beyond time. The hour is short. Paul says in verse 14, one final summary command. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Meaning there are situations that we put ourselves in where the chances are pretty good that your sinful desires can be satisfied. When we're alone in an empty house with our boyfriend or girlfriend. When we're at a buffet dinner at a holiday party and we can eat and drink into gluttony and drunkenness. When we're aimlessly doom-scrolling the reels and we end up looking at porn or something we shouldn't look at. All of that is making provision, being in the environment to be around sin. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't even put yourself in that position. And we're called then to live out our faith in actual righteousness. We sometimes get all wrapped around the axle of how we can apologetically answer the questions to the faith. And, and we do need to have some answers. And we do need to know the right words to say. But church, the biggest apologetic that we have in defense of our faith is the life that we live. People won't believe a word that we say if it comes from the lips of a sin-filled life. And once again, then, Paul calls us to holiness. So why? Why is Paul calling us to do any of this? Should we be holy just for the sake of being holier than thou? To be better than someone else? No. Go back to where we started. Go back to where he said in Colossians 3, it's about love. So here's the big idea. True Christian holiness is driven by love. True Christian holiness is driven by love. Why? Well, love God, first of all. Why do we seek to put on Christ? We should love God. And looking to put on Christ and walking in righteousness pleases God. That shows that we love God. The holier and more mature also, secondly, that we're in the faith, then we can actually love each other better. When our faith is not a matter of legalism or intellectual knowledge, but rather when it's over actual righteousness, then we not only love God more, but that allows us to love others better. And also how we engage with this world, this lost, logically insane world and the bankruptcy and the corrosion of cultural wokeness. When we speak the truth, that is actually loving We're warning them from the judgment to come. We are pointing them to the hope that is only available in Christ Jesus. We remember that our wokeness is biblical, not cultural. We must know what time it is in our culture, but also personally, we should seek to be done with sin. Paul says, enough already. Cast it aside. And as we look at our relationship with others, true Christian love does no wrong to others. The more we look at others and seek to love each other well, the more then we will actually fulfill the law of God. We love God with our whole selves and we love others as much as we love ourselves. All of this has to be driven by love. The Christian life is not all about holiness or all about love. It's about both because true Christian holiness has to be driven by love. Love for God and love for others. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness, your grace. Lord, this is a challenging passage. This is a, uh, a bold passage. It, it, it draws to attention some, some shocking sins, Lord. 
And sometimes we can be more shocked by the obscenity of sin and we blow right past the other sins like quarreling or jealousy or sins of the heart. Give us that understanding that all sin is sin to you. May we seek to be holy. May we seek to grow in our maturity. And may it be because we're driven by love. Love for you and love for others. And would you help us do that today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.